Uh, Desmond, welcome to Laugh and Monkey Music Show. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. I'm here with you. I'm alive. I'm above ground. I'm safe so far and um, grateful to be alive. It's, it's been a crazy year. The, the apocalypse we've been going through with um, the world's on fire, man. Hopefully it's going to be better. You know, I'm hopeful. Well, you know, I guess there have been awful times through history. And good things sometimes come out of distress. Good music sometimes comes, come, comes out of like the worst times. I agree so, with you, I think. Um, you know, it, it helps us to take um, a second, more than a second, to be appreciative of what is going right. I, I agree with you. I think, um, in fact, probably all the best songs have come from musicians that have had some kind of challenging backgrounds that kind of push forward, you know, have had their own difficulties. You are actually promoting your, your two uh, albums, your two first albums right now, right? Let's talk about well, it. Yes. And, you know, when I was in college at NYU, I started a group uh, with my girlfriend at the time, uh, Maria Vidal. We started a group called Desmond Child and Rouge, along with Diana Griselli and Miriam Valley. And we played all the little clubs in New York City. And we'd stencil our names on the sidewalks and around the big record companies and uh, put our posters on top of other people's posters uh, and just plastered the city with our images. We'd come up with really clever, um, kind of, it was like a guerrilla warfare thing with the other acts. Um, but we didn't care. I got arrested once. Oh, really? You know, yeah. In those days, I heard the Irish mafia controlled the posters that went on the, on the, you know, the construction sites that if you put a poster over one of their posters, you'd be in trouble because they could track you down because they'd have your name. They'd, they'd see yeah. where, you, where you were playing, what time you were playing. Um, so somebody finally told us not to do it. And I, we realized, you know, that it was probably a bad thing. That probably is the worst crime to commit with all your information on you. Like the worst criminal ever. <laughs> Leaving your, well, your calling uh, card behind. Anyway, we got discovered at a place called Reno Sweeney. It was the kind of chic nightclub where all the, you know, intelligentsia of New York City was hanging out, like Andy Warhol and, oh my God, you know, Jacqueline Onassis and, um, you know, up and coming people like Ali Willis and Mark Shaman and Melissa Manchester and Ellen Green and all of these people. We were all playing this little club on West 13th Street. And we got discovered there by Richard Landis, an A&R guy and producer at Capitol Records. And so uh, he believed in us and we made these two really fantastic albums all within a year. And we, we, you know, we put out the first one and then it was kind of a transition in music because I don't know if you've seen the um, documentary called... Uh, uh, how, how can you mend a broken heart? It's the, it's the story of the Bee Gees. Right. It talked about yeah. how they had been, you know, these kind of almost Beatlesque um, Australians that hmm. sang, brothers that sang in harmony. And then somewhere along the line, they discovered dance music. 
and they did the music to Saturday Night Fever, and they had, you know, fantastic records. And then they also, uh, you know, they were at the top uh, with Saturday Night Fever, one of the biggest selling records of all time. And then there was a DJ that uh, went on the scene, Rick Dees, I think his name was, or is, and he said, uh, you know, that, you know, disco music was evil and they started going to these uh, big um, athletic events and he'd tell everyone to bring their disco records and then they'd all run onto the field and throw them in a pile and burn them like the Nazis burning books, you know, that they didn't like forbidden books. So it was forbidden disco. And it was really, you know, and explains it in this fantastic documentary on the Bee Gees, that it was a very racist and homophobic uh, act. And, yeah. you know, all of these kind of, uh, you know, people that, you know, didn't go to clubs to dance, weren't in cities, they were out there in the heartland. All they wanted to do was listen to rock and roll. So it kind of gave birth in a way to the music that came in the 80s um, because then it made room for Bon Jovi and Aerosmith and, you know, Rat and all the, you know, people and acts that then I worked with, but on the side because my career was over because we were combining rock with dance beats. And in fact, one of the most successful collaborations I had was with Paul Stanley of Kiss and we co-wrote a song called I Was Made For Loving You. Motown dance beat and rock guitars. It was revolutionary and changed the course of pop music. It definitely did. Uh, and it was, you know, it's still to this day, Kiss's biggest international hit of all time. And so Paul Stanley used to come to see Desmond Child and Rouge um, and at a place called Trax. In, on the Upper West Side on 72nd Street. You had to go downstairs, actually really, truly underground. <laughs> and um, that's where George Harrison of the Beatles came to see us. And uh, Paul would come all the time. And, um, you know, one night he said, hey, you know, why don't you and I try writing a song together? I said, okay, well, why don't you write a song with me for Desmond Child and Rouge, and I'll write a song with you for your band. You know, I didn't really know that much about Kiss because it was kind of like, oh, that's what, you know, little kids with lunchboxes listen to or something. But, you know, they would play Madison Square Garden. They were like huge act. And um, okay, so we made the trade. He co-wrote a song with me uh, called The Fight, which we co-wrote with uh, David Landau. Uh, and um, I co-wrote a song with him called I Was Made For Loving You. And um, I th think I, I, it turned out that I, I did better on the bet, you know, on the trade, you know, than he did. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, it's one of the things that, you know, has, you know, kept me going financially that the songwriting royalties from that song. So, um, Desmond Child and Rouge made these two albums. We toured the country. We played every major city and out in the boonies too. And um, it was a, you know, kind of transition time for music, right? Because it, with this kind of anti-disco 
thing and our music had like a strong R&B influence. Oh yeah. Uh, we found kind of a resistance. So I decided, okay, let's switch gears. And we made a rock record called Runners in the Night. That was revolutionary in its own way too. We worked very closely with G.E. Smith, the guitarist that was on Saturday Night Live uh, for many yep. And, um, you know, it, it, it was, uh, and we actually went on Saturday Night Live as the musical guests. And uh, the three girls I sang with went on Broadway with Gilda Radner in a show called Gilda Live from New York that ended up being a movie that one can watch called Gilda Live, uh, directed by Mike Nichols. So we, we had the world on a string. Everything was happening. But personally, we were imploding. I mean, you know, it was a very, very stressful time for me because I, I realized, you know, Maria and I, it was just... Desmond and Maria, Desmond and Maria, Maria and Desmond, Desmond and Maria. We were the ones that were kind of, you know, the center of keeping Desmond, Child and Rouge together. And we lived together in a tiny apartment that it was just a studio apartment, didn't, didn't even have a bedroom, you know? And we lived together for like four and a half years while, we, while I was finishing college at NYU and she was uh, waitressing. She was a singing waitress at a place called Once Upon a Stove. And her uh, waitress name was Gina, Gina Velvet. And so then later, um, she, you know, was, you know, she lives forever and living on a prayer as the Gina works the diner all day. And That's so, awesome. uh, um, so it was a fantastic time. But I, as I started growing up, because, you know, I was now 22, 23 years old. I realized that, you know, before I thought I was kind of bisexual, kind of like, I like, you know, I was so in love with her and I loved her and was attracted to her and all that. But I also had a strong attraction to guys. So I figured, oh, well, I'm like, you know, rock stars like David Bowie and Mick Jagger. And like they they can do whatever they want. You know, they can be whatever, you know, like now we call it, you know, like binary this and that i don't even know the terms uh, yeah. uh what people how they label themselves but i started feeling you know more like i was more gay than i was bi and so that became a problem for desmond child and rouge because you know she and i were the center of this group and it was very heartbreaking to finally face the you know that reality so all of that process worked into the rock record called Runners. What in year the was Night. this? What year? 1979. And um, the, the lyrics, if you read the lyrics on that album, especially the opening song, The Truth Comes Out. And it says, uh, you know, so like, um, you know, it's all about, you know, the truth comes out, no hiding now and all that. It was my coming out song. And... Um, it was very, very powerful for me to become my, my true self, but it was very painful for her. So it was very hard to continue, you know, as a group. And also at the time, you know, I had people talking into my ear, you know, saying, you know, hey, what do you need those three girls for? You know, that's kind of cheesy. You know, you should, you should, you know, uh, you know, be like, you know, uh, Bruce Springsteen or something like that. 
And then on the other hand, every single one of them had somebody saying, you know, what do you need those guys? What do you need that guy for? You're a star unto yourself. But our strength was all of us bringing the best of ourselves together. We didn't see that. I mean, not even a few years later, Prince came out with bands that had, you know, girls in makeup and corsets and, um, you know, Madonna and George Michael. And, you know, it's sort of like all of a sudden, you know, it was like what we were doing, they eventually did, not because of us, but I mean, we were a little bit too ahead of our time. Yeah. And yeah. we didn't have enough support within our managers or our, our record label and all that to see the specialness and the fun of what we were creating and we weren't being encouraged and you know our insecurities and everything just got the better of us but you know if if you go to our instagram desmond child and rouge and or you go to our website you know www.desmondchildandrouge.com uh you you will be in that very special year you will be transported our bios don't go past that year. I live with Maria in that little room and going to NYU and playing all the little clubs. Really, it's like that song, The Hungry Years. You know, it's like I, I had the most fun ever. Laughed harder than ever. Fell on the floor with my stomach hurting from laughing so many times with these three vivacious women that were clever, witty, just so amazing. And, um, it, you know, to me, it's just like, ah, you know, it's just like with the, was the best time. So um, now BMG uh, reissued our two albums. Plus this year we re-recorded Our Love is Insane, our, our single that was reimagined it as a kind of more like dance, EDM faster tempo. We re, we recut it from scratch. We sang everything. The, the Rouge sounds be, you know better than ever, and um, that's called. How fantastic does it feel to be with them? How fantastic to come full circle? It's got to be like it's, priceless. Yeah, so much fun, and the, and it's called "Our Love Is Insane" double X because for twenty, right? Yeah. So how it all started was three years ago. I got asked to do a live show which I had always wanted to do, you know, cause I, I, had, I hadn't been performing in many decades. I was just a studio rat, you know, working with other people, helping them, you know, reach the heights of everything. And so I said, okay, I want to go back to New York and there's a club there called 54 Below. And it's below the original Studio 54. A club that was playing our music, but we weren't, allowed to get into because we didn't look cool enough our song being played inside and the guy was like no sorry come back another time you know uh we decided to re-record that and we've been recording new material that no one's ever heard and we're going to start dropping singles like crazy over the next you know for forever you know it's like we're not in the rat race of trying to get singles out and trying to sell an album and trying to sell a tour. I mean, no one's touring and now anyway and won't for a while. So this has been a very creative time, I know, for everybody and a rethinking of what it means to even make a record. You know, 
What are you making it for? Who's listening? How are they listening? Are they going to listen to a whole album? Are they just going to listen to one song? And I've seen it, you know, in Nashville, it's really changed um, where you have artists putting out uh, what they call EPs, extended plays of four songs. And then one of those will, radio will pick one to be the single, right? So then after three months, three and a half months of playing that out, they release another single with three more songs. So it's a second EP. And so it's like, oh, now there's new material that people will listen to. And then after that's done, they'll release another single that no one's heard before with the rest of the album going into, you know, Christmas. And the thing is, it's like, you could have a single before we do a single and then three weeks later, we'd put out the album. But now it's like, and people would buy the album, hear the whole album. But now people will hear the song they like and then they'll go to another song they like. They're not sitting there religiously looking at the credits, knowing who's playing, who wrote the songs. Uh, why does this song go into the other song? Does the album have a concept? An continuity, continuity, yeah. Continuity. Um, that kind of went out the window. Because, Do you think it's because the age of people are? Like the generationally? Because I love a full album. I have vinyl. I'm 50. I love to get my hands on it and read the artwork. And like, I knew of you as much as I knew of all the other bands I was listening to. Everyone you were writing for, whether it was Rad or Bon Jovi, everyone, like your name was as prevalent. So you were like out there from the beginning because it was always about liner notes and reading. I mean, CDs got kind of hard to read with that small print, but you know what I'm saying? But nowadays, I don't think people care. It's like Spotify and iTunes, it's just about singles. Well, the attention span is short. You know, a few years ago, we started getting requests for one minute edits of songs, of singles, one minute. Huh? Yeah, for Japan. I don't understand. Like just a song they, for a minute they, long song? Just one minute. You get one, one minute, one free minute on radio to promote your song. One minute. And then it goes commercial. to the next song. It's a free one minute commercial of your song because this way they can, the attention span is so short, people don't even want to wait to the end of the song. So you'll, you'll hear like uh, intro, verse, B section, chorus, then a little interlude, and then it goes right to the end. We don't know how much they got played or didn't get played. But, Is it weird um, to chop up your songs like that? No, we did whatever it took, you know, because like if you're going to put a song into a movie, they say, okay, give us a two minute version. Give us a one minute version. Give us a 30 second version. Put your best verse forward, put your best chorus forward and then hope that somebody picks up on it and then goes home and then finds the entire song and then yep. might lead them into all of your music. So it's, it's, it's been a tough time. Plus, you know, the streaming rates have been so low. A lot of brilliant people choose maybe not to be in this career because it doesn't pay. So people are, can be fantastic hobbyists and make amazing music at home. But, you know, something about having tour support and promotion and getting out there and seeing the world with your music makes your songs come out different makes the next song you write you know about on the road again or whatever it is 
It's like you're you're writing songs that go with the life of an artist, not just the the life of the Unabomber just sitting there typing away. <laughs> you know, you're experiencing like, your life, and then you're writing about what you're living as you go through life. You know. Yeah. So so when people stop doing that, and the COVID thing didn't help, um, no. then it's like music will be different. You know, people are going to have to use their creative imaginations uh, rather than their life experiences to to sing about things that are inspiring or, or, you know, suspenseful or fun or lively or sexy even, you know, in ways that the person, it's all in their heads. It's all in their heads. Yeah, everything's in our heads anyhow, right? <laughs> the good and the bad. Well, it literally is because... Yeah. You know, they even say what we see isn't out there. It's just how it, the light reflects into our brain and then we put it all together in our head. It's yeah. the same with music, but still, you know. BG's big part of your influence or in the back of your mind when you were songwriting back then? A little bit of that blue-eyed soul thing along with Hall & Oates. You know, they, they were like blue-eyed soul. So they were mm -hmm. going off of the Philly sound and the, B the Bee Gees had their own, maybe they were working in Philly, I don't know, but uh, they, they set up camp in Miami and uh, at Criteria Studios with friend Albie Galutin, who's a dear friend, he's in the movie, and he yep. was one of the co-producers, co-creators of this incredible style that was really chic, uh, absolutely, if you listen um, to those songs like that they wrote for Barbara Streisand on an album oh, called yeah. Guilty. I mean, just play that loud, man. It's like, I don't hear music like that. I mean, it sounds so, so good. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean that I can't get down with, you know, hard rock or even modern rock or any of those things because they all have their own special world and they're speaking to their own you know, kind of audiences. But I think one of the things that happened, you know, during the Clinton years is this kind of uh, opening up so a company could buy, you know, as many radio stations as they wanted to. Before, they didn't let more than, you know, somebody buy one or two radio stations. Uh, the government didn't want somebody controlling the media and putting out like the, a kind of message that yeah. messages that we hear now from networks and also, you know, in other ways mm -hmm. online. Uh, so, so the taste of every um, program director was a little bit different. So the audiences would get to hear a variety of music in different locales. And also, let's say it was like Almond Brothers. Well, you hear more Almond Brothers in Southern states, you know, cause that was like Southern rock. Yep. Or you hear more Mellencamp in the, you know, in the heartland or you hear more Fleetwood Mac, like on the West Coast, you know. Those, those you, are great. You, they could break it, you could break an album back then. Somebody could flip over the B side of something and it could just pick up wind from, from the fans itself. Or you could take two or three right. albums to, to build a band and not have to be triple platinum out of the gate and then gone in five years. I mean, you know. Well, also I think there were these mega like moguls that owned the, you know, or were the heads of labels that were daring. You know, if, if Clive Davis liked your music, 
-hmm. he would stick with you forever. And it wouldn't matter if like three or four albums failed, he'd keep going because he saw the vision. And usually he, you know, he was right. You know, um, you know, Ahmed Erdogan, um, you know, Bob Krasnow, these, these people like had vision and, you know, I'm not saying the people now don't have vision, but they really have corporate folks they have to answer to and they have to look at bottom lines and, you know, they can't have losers. So what they do is they have the A&R people trained to be surfing, you know, Spotify searching for who's got the numbers, who's got the numbers. And if somebody zooms up, they're there, like five labels are there knocking on a door saying, sign with us. And that, you know, but that artist created themselves. They made it happen, yeah. you know, in their, in their bedroom. They made, they made that stuff happen. And so then the labels have a lot to bring to the table once they get behind somebody, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, because they also have, you know, their catalog of music that's still selling that funds today. Right. And, you know, remember the labels always had a bigger share of everything, you know? Uh, yeah. But, you know, they would we say, well, hey, look at the overhead we have. Uh, you, on the other hand, uh, wrote your song on a banjo smoking a corn pipe, you know, in, in, in the backwoods. What's your overhead? So we got to have more than you to pay for all of this power, you know, to make, you know, some folky, you know, from Muskogee, a big yeah. star. I can see that. So Faith. that's why, you know, it's like, you know, people can say, okay, the publishers, maybe, you know, they, they're unfair or the labels are unfair, you know, but on the other hand, you know, they bring a lot to the table and they do have higher overhead, you know, than an individual person. So, you know, it's always going to be a bit of a struggle. And basically also for every hundred acts, you know, that Clive Davis put out, maybe 10 of them became big stars. Yeah. You know, not everyone's, not everyone's meant to be a big star, no matter how good you are, for a lot of reasons. Like, I didn't become a big star, you know? It, you know and once I started co-writing with bands and making money and being successful, I got a different kind of respect, you know, that I longed for. But I still, you know, I, I still sing. I still wanted to put, I put out records that I'm singing, you know, I, I actually just listened to one of them. It was the last one you just did. It was, it was great. You're singing your songs and you're kind of like taking the piss out of people too. You, you, you're really funny about it too. I really enjoy it. Your little comments. Oh, that was my, that's my live album called Desmond Child yeah. Live. That is actually fun. So I recommend that. That's. Uh... Yeah. So, you know, it's like, I'm lucky that I have BMG, um, BMG rights because they believe in me and they're not, you know, they're not looking at, you know, whether I'm turning a profit or not, I'm, you know, I'm not going crazy. And, you know, most of the things I do, I'm putting up my own money for anyway. Um, but it's nice to have a home to be able to put your songs and know that you can go and download a song and the, my co-writers will get paid if it sells. And, 
you know, I don't have to do the paperwork and all yeah. of that. So I'm very lucky, you know, that I have this kind of home at BMG and uh, they're very entrepreneurial and supporting entrepreneurs yeah, uh, like me. And um, I think that that's a wonderful place. And, you know, they're not doing so bad. They're doing great, you that's know, with this kind of like very open door policy that they have. I, I, I think, um, yeah, the industry's changed, but I, I think it was really amazing. I don't think you get enough credit for is coming out, we said in 79, in the rock music industry, the most heterosexual industry <laughs> at that time coming out was, was pretty right. big. And it, you know, it was awesome. It was groundbreaking for a lot on a lot of levels, you know? I mean, well, how hard was it to push your way through? I mean. Well, there was always a glass ceiling when it came to me producing rock band, male rock bands. You know, so I'd always get solo artists like Cher, uh, Michael Bolton, um, Alice Cooper, Joan Jett, um, you know, people like that. And then later, Ricky Martin, um, Katy Perry, um, Carrie Underwood. Those are, those are all pretty good. I mean, I know back then, a lot of the producers held on to their artists. They locked down. You didn't really get a lot of producers out in those back then. No, I mean, I... Um, as a producer, there was a glass ceiling for me yep. because bands were okay co-writing with me because there was kind of equality. But the truth is, once you're the producer, you're the big man. You're yeah. the you're the you're the boss. And you know somehow they didn't want a gay guy being their boss. You know, and so the truth is that there were no gay record producers out ones until Linda Perry came along. So I was the only one out there for decades, you know, and um, I knew maybe some, some uh, dance remixer DJ guys that were gay that might've been working with Madonna or something, but for what I did in pop and rock, you know, there was nothing, nothing uh, out there. And in that way, I'm, you know, I've been kind of revolutionary. Yeah, I think that's an important part of your, your history. I mean, that's and, as big uh, But as I all. still think it's that way. I still think it's that way. It hasn't changed, really. How many gay producers are there? They're out. They're it's out. me and Linda Perry. Hello. You know, that's it, really. I don't hear of gay guys out there producing rec records. Where? Who? You know why I think because a lot of those producers were the buddies, the drinking buddies of the A&R guys who then threw the work at them. And then afterwards they'd go to their, you know, strip joints and do Coke and, you yeah. know, all that kind of stuff that, you know, guys do go to sports and uh, all those kinds of things. And um, so, you know, when they had success, they'd get more work and more work. And then, you know, I was pushed out. There was no, there's no room for me there. But yet, you know, my name would be attached as a co-writer. Yeah. And so, you know, but, you know, I did okay with the kind of, you know, outcasts that I was uh, working with. Meatloaf, Alice Cooper, Joan Jett, Cher. I mean, think about all those 
you know, Ronnie Spector. Think about all of those artists, you know, they are very unique icons unto themselves. Ricky Martin, you know, and um, Katy Perry, like, like I said before, you know, it's like um, solo artists were okay with that, you know, and especially female ones, they didn't care that I was gay. I was less of a threat. No me too from me, (laughs) no me too situations. Yeah, you know. yeah. I'm laughing at the whole threat thing. I mean, I think it's it's ridiculous. You're a good songwriter. I don't think you know the whole the whole wall of it is, is insane. And I'm hoping things are going to change more. But you know, I'm sure you're right on the button in the money as far as how closed-minded the industry still is. You know. Well, you know, it's like people. <clears throat> they're you know, they're very cool. Um, you know, new acts that are out there that are you know crossing the line, you know, with transgender and all of these things. And um, they're changing it for themselves and they're producing their own records. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, because they can, because they have, you know, they can be self-contained. On the other hand, you know, um, once we were able to get uh, marriage rights, you know, and I, I, I've been with my husband for 32 years. And then finally, and uh, we had twin sons through a surrogate mother and an egg donor and all that. In fact, there's a documentary about our process, our journey called Two TWO, the story of Roman and Nero, N-Y-R-O. He's named after Laura Nero. And uh, if you go to www.2twothedocumentary.com, you know, that lead you to Amazon Prime or iTunes or wherever mm-hmm. it's still playing. And, um, you know, it, it took us to, um, you know, that documentary was like a 12-year journey um, of us wanting to have children, of us searching and finally meeting our surrogate mom in India. And, um, you know, she was an American that was part of the Steepak Chopra conference that we attended. And just, it was so magical so many things happen you know it's like everybody thinks that you know their child has like the this you know it's like the holy birth you know um and ours you know came into this world in in a special way but everything that led to it seemed just as spiritual and special as anybody else's story and so i think purposeful yeah so they so finally in 2013 uh, we were able to get married when right when our documentary came out, and it's a cool documentary because our sons are little, but they they um, they were like nine years old when they um, um, were the narrators of the film, and so now they're at NYU, and um, they're like 18 years old, and that's where I went to school at NYU, and so. I'm very proud of them. But what I was going to say is when when we got marriage rights, then all of these people that were like not liking us being gay, like really went on the high horse because then we were actually as equal as them. And they were saying, well, they're, you know, making marriage, you know, like uh, defaming it or disgracing it by marrying gay people. I mean, it was the craziest thing like Canada already had it forever and the sky didn't fall through. And now we've had it since 20, 
13 and it's like, who cares? But still, they're trying, you know, these people, I mean, they're trying to turn the election, you know. I know, in the uh, bathrooms, you know. That's the same folks, you know, now they, you know, they'll probably, you know, go after marriage rights and other things, uh, try to bring it down because uh, they don't like it. Not that what we do hurts them at all. You know, we're not really hurt. And it, and if the fact that my husband and I are happily married for 32 years and some other people out there that have been married three or four times yeah. find it a problem staying married because we exist, it's like, guys, it's not us, it's you. Well, because we were, you know, they saw so much love around them. You know, I mean, they had it not only from us, but, you know, our family of choice, all these loving people that they grew up with, um, you know, there's, they didn't, they're not going to be going to a therapist saying they didn't love me and all that kind of stuff that just, you know, I don't know what they would complain about. Maybe (laughs) they made me go to so many Broadway shows. (laughs) They made us dress in matching outfits with funny hats. You know, I grew up poor in the in the projects of Miami. My mom was a Cuban immigrant, uh, a single mom, um, held down, couldn't hardly hold down a job. But the ones she did hold down were very low paying. Like she worked at Burger King for a long time. And that's what we ate every night when she'd come home. It's kind of soggy whoppers. Uh, the bottoms were like like mush, so we'd take two tops and kind of make <laughs> that one, uh, and that's what we eat at you know eleven o'clock at night when she got home. And in the meantime, we ate like cereal that we poured ourselves, you know. So it was like I grew up, you know, in a very mixed but sometimes very dangerous neighborhood. So you know, she was a songwriter and a poet. And she was very beautiful, uh, but she couldn't really speak English that well. And so she really struggled in this country um, to, to do anything. And so I've been working on putting her all of her poetry and lyrics together. She died in 2012. And that year I co-founded the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame in her honor, along with Rudy Perez, um, my co co-founder and, and uh, we're in our eighth year and it's oh, wow. under the you know we we styled our you know kind of uh, sculpted ourselves after the songwriters hall of fame in new york which i also thank god I, my mother got to see me get inducted um before she passed um but you know it was like one of those things is like there was no b plan you know, and sometimes I say to people in the master classes that I give, it's like, okay, this is, you want to do music. That's your A plan. What's your B plan? And people will, will say, you know, whatever it is. And I say, okay, do your B plan. <laughs> if you have a B plan, get out, <laughs> you know, yeah. get out now. Because, you know, it takes such single vision and determination and, you know, some people have more talent than others, but that you can't really control. That's, you know, kind of nature's gift to you, right? But you can control the amount of ambition that you, you know, drive in yourself to follow through, to, 
keep trying to write better songs, even if you're not the best, to try to sing better, to try to play instruments better, to try to program, be very self-sufficient, uh, do you know as much as you can so you're not depending and waiting around for other people to co-write a song with you. Write the song, like now, you know, figure out, you know, read a lot of poetry, figure out lyrics, read everything Bob Dylan ever wrote and Joni Mitchell and Laura Nero, you know, that's all that, you know, that's a good idea right there. I, I, I'm going to say grew up my, my stepmom turned me on to uh, with Eli and the 13 Steps. Is that the album? Eli that, and the, that 13 is... Confe- the 13 Confessions. Oh, Confessions. I'm sorry. It, so like each, song, each song, I think there were 13 songs. Each song was a confession. And that's, that's great uh, yeah, I first heard that when a, a snowbird friend of mine on Miami Beach, I met her like in the lower lobby of the Fountain Blue Hotel and her parents had a cabana upstairs. And so she, you know, the thing is, is that her dad, uh, you know, was um, um, Jerry Wexler, who was the producer that produced Aretha Franklin. Okay. And many other acts. And they were, he and Tom Dowd or Reef Martin, you know, they were producing records at Criteria. So they had a house that they rented, I think, on the water, you know, uh, where she, she lived. But they had the cabana at the, at the hotel where they would go and swim in the pool and whatnot. But they had a house. And so she invited me to her house for dinner all the time. And there I'd be sitting at the table with, you know, Jerry Wexler, Tom Dowd, Arif Martin, uh, sometimes Ahmed Erdogan would fly down and she'd be like pulling on my shirt, like, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. <laughs> so I'd go to her bedroom and she had like the like original printings that no one even heard of Led Zeppelin albums, you know, that she was playing me because, <laughs> you know, they were just like what the dad was listening to. He said, oh, well, tell me what you think of this. You know, before, like way before it came out. Oh, and, the test pressings and stuff? Test pressings, yeah. And uh, she played me Laura Nero and that album, Eli and the 13 Confessions. And I was like, that Laura Nero's voice and energy and her lyrics mm-hmm. and her, her sonics, everything touched me. And I said, that's what I want to do. And, um, you know, so I think that album should be a must, must, must listen to if you're going to be a songwriter. I mean, I think I love that album. And the next album is this like very dark album that she wrote called New York Tenderberry. And the next one after that, it's like the sun came back out with Christmas and the beads of sweat. Those three albums are like just killer. And every girl you see up there, Sarah Bareilles or Fiona Apple or um, anybody that you see up there, you know, girl playing piano, singing. Could not have happened without Laura Nero having happened. In fact, I once had dinner with Joni Mitchell and um, I was at one end of the table. She was the other end of the table. And as people kept getting up, this was the monkey club in, in LA, you know, they'd get up and go do drugs or in the bathroom or whatever. I kept moving down, getting closer and closer. <laughs> me and Diane Warren. So it was like me and then Diane next to me and we get closer and closer. Finally, it was just the three of us. She was at the head of the table. It was her birthday. And, um, you know, she, she handed me a joint and it's like, I was still a little bit, I don't know, like kind of 
prim and proper or whatever. And I was kind of like passing it to Diane. She kicked me under the table. She says, it's fucking Joni Mitchell, smoke it. You know? <laughs> so I was like, like holding it really weird and stuff. But then I got a chance to ask her, well, you know, did you, did you ever listen to the music of Laura Nero? Did, 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 what was that like for you? And she said, I would not have started playing piano had I not listened to Laura Nero. Oh, that is great to hear. That and, to hear. Uh, you know, she was always this amazing guitarist, folk guitarist. Mm -hmm. And she oh, yeah. had studied piano as a little girl, but she hadn't taken up piano until she heard Lo Joni Mitchell. And then she made an album called Blue. Yep. Uh, uh, that is very moody and a little tribute-esque of Laura Nero. And it, that made me feel so good that even Joni Mitchell was influenced by Laura Nero. That is so when my son was born, you know, I named him Nero, N-Y-R-O. And he's cool, like man. the only person on earth whose first name is Nero. I mean, it's just- Well, no when, I, when I actually heard that, I read Nero, the first thing I thought of was Laura Nero. I gotta, I gotta ask him because- Yeah. How could you not be, how can you be a songwriter and, and, and not listen to Laura, and, you know? And, you know, his whole life he always said, why did you name me Nero? You know, why'd you name me after a lesbian folk singer? <laughs> and I said, well, Dylan was taken. A lot of things. I'm, I've been co-writing a Broadway show called Cuba Libre with my collaborator, David Sigerson. We've been working on it. It's like, it's taking longer than the Sistine Chapel. No joke, since 2005. I'm writing it. Uh, that one's the true story of my family before and after the Cuban Revolution. It's a fantastic story about my two beautiful aunts who were my mother's younger sisters. And one at a very early age when she was 19, 20, became the lover of Batista, the, the, the dictator who was the president. And then the other one who was still younger, she, be, she became the, the lover of Castro after what? the revolution. Yeah. So it's two sisters, two dictators, one island. You That's do the insane. math. No. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're, there's, there's sisterly rivalry, uh, their bonds, you know, their family bonds, politics, um, you know, one, going from one world to the other. You know, we, we sort of call it Le Mis with bongos. You know, it's like massive, like, you know, historic musical. And uh, with these these beautiful, vivacious lead, leads in it. Um, so we've been doing that. And I've also been co-writing with um, Carolyn Bryant and Sharon Vaughn, um, um, the story of Boudlow and Felice Bryant, who were the first professional songwriters in Nashville. And they co-wrote all these songs that were performed by the biggest stars then, but especially the Everly Brothers, uh, okay. you know, like um, Bye Bye Love and, you know, oh my God, there's so many. And they co-wrote uh, that beautiful song, Love Hurts, that Nazareth sang and uh, Roy Orbison and all this. So we're writing their love story. And so it's been a lot of fun. That's what we've been doing all this whole COVID period. Nashville. Because the catalog, the catalog is so deep with uh, Boudreaux and Felice Bryant and their love story so touching. And, you know, the, you know, she was Sicilian. She was kind of dark Sicilian. And 
he, you know, I think had some Native American thing in him. And when they got here, they pulled in with their trailer and their two kids into a trailer park that said, no Negroes or Italians. And they had a hit song on the radio. And so then they, con they convinced the owner that, you know, they could pay them because they had the hit song called Country Boy that was playing at the time. And, um, you know, kind of everyone fell in love with them. So they were breaking down barriers even then. This is like, you know, early, late 40s in Nashville. You know, that, it, that is it was, a, it was, and even country music to this day is, is not, you know, has not been a, an open place for people of color, you know? I can see um, that. You moved to Nashville from, well, you were in LA for a while, right? And you moved to Nashville as a I, couple I years ago? I moved here when Rock died. Um, that was 94 because um, I'd heard, you know, it was like all the acts I was working on just like suddenly weren't on MTV or weren't play, getting played on the radio. Yep. So they all started doing compilations, you know, all of them, Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, yep. Michael Bolton, Foreigner, everybody was already on the third compilation by 92, 93. And, um, you know, I had to reinvent myself. So I'd heard some music. It sounded like Bon Jovi, except the guy singing seemed to have a twang. And that was Garth Brooks. No. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to go to Nashville and I'm going to get Garth Brooks to sing one of my songs. So I looked on his album and I found the name Victoria Shaw. And I said, I'm going to co-write with her. And she was the first person I co-wrote with and, you know, accepted me 100%. And um, she had written The River and other songs uh, with and for Garth. Um, and we wrote a song called Where, Where Your Road Leads. And uh, Garth sang it as a duet with Trisha Yearwood. Was it different I, writing country music to, for you? Well, no, I mean, it's storytelling. Well, I, I get you, that. I mean, you are the best storyteller. I mean, all your songs have, you're like miniature movies in your head. And I visualize them. I mean, it's. I mean, there's incredible, you know, there are incredible artists here that, you know, there is, you know, of course, just like in pop music, it can be, you know, radio will only play a kind of narrow field, mm -hmm. you know, of and what those people are representing and what they're singing is very, you know, kind of what it is, you know, and uh, people that are a little bit different falling off on the sides can still have amazing careers, but it doesn't mean the country radio will play it. Because right. you know, their constituents don't want to hear from, you know, black people, or gay people, or any kind of other people, Latin people. They just, you know, are more comfortable with people more like themselves, and you know that that's why it's been very very hard for people to come into Nashville and say, okay, I'm, you know, someone from, you know a different ethnic background than everybody else. And I want to make it here because I love country music so much. And it's just not, not easy at all, you know? No, I, and, you know, I'm a bit different and I've never, I've been here since 94. And it's like, 
I never feel like I'm really accepted by the community. You know, I, I feel, you know, always a bit on the outside and, um, you know, for the, all the same reasons, you know, and I get some respect because a lot of them are influenced by the, you know, songs I've, you know, co-written with, you know, big bands like Bon Jovi and Aerosmith there, you can hear the influence, but, you know, it doesn't mean they want to co-write with me. And that's uh, crazy. So I'm fine because this was a beautiful, wonderful place to raise our children. And um, I'm very, you know, happy with our friends. And Nashville in itself is cosmopolitan. It's a blue county. So I feel free here. I feel That's okay. Good. I'm on the board of ASCAP and I attended the uh, uh, Contemporary Christian Music Awards a couple of years ago. And uh, they kind of... Uh, acknowledged me from the stage and they said, well, there's Desmond Child, you know, he wrote one of the biggest, you know, worship songs of all time, living on a prayer, you know, for one second, but that's pretty funny. You know, it's really funny, especially <laughs> the context of it now, because isn't there a line in that song, the, um, is there truth to it? Was there like you were involved? This is like a, not a cult, but there's something that was infecting that some of the lines in the song in living on a prayer. It's make yeah. if we make it or I not. Is that I, true? It's like it, it uh, doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. Yes, yes, that, yes. That line was coming out of this kind of philosophy, out of a cult that I was living in at the time in upstate New York, and uh, doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. The leader of it would always be saying, kind of with this blank stare, cold blue eyes, you know, well, it doesn't make a difference doesn't make a difference. The truth is the truth. Doesn't make a difference what anyone thinks, you know, kind of like doesn't make a difference if we make it or not make it. It's like he had like the Zen kind of thing and it made it into the song. And, uh, but it kind of worked because it said we got each other and, uh, and that's a lot for love, we'll give it a shot. So yeah. it's like, so like, we'll try even if we don't make it. And um, that kind of was a beautiful, kind of uh, strange influence, you know, into the song, but, you know, John and Richie helped bring it to together with this complete thought. So I'm very happy, you know, I mean, whatever I lost, you know, having been in, you know, time and everything, it was made up for by the writing of that song, you know. That's good. I mean, it's, 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 it was very difficult for me because, I wanted a, to be in a family so bad. I, so when I left there, as soon as I left there, I met Curtis and we started our family. And, oh. you know, and so that's what I was looking for. I was looking for love. You know, I just took advantage of that. Being in the wrong places. <laughs> but you got a good song idea, though. I think that that's one thing you talked about earlier about not being able to live and be outside of the world and write songs. You've taken all your experiences, you know, and you tether them yeah. back into something your song i mean that's you know do you, is it different when you write with different artists do you, different artists have like a different way of doing things i mean well i'm there for them so i'm kind of uh, like i'll morph into whatever makes them comfortable and but i'm still myself inside but right, you know, right. i may dress a certain way if i know i'm working with one act or another 
I may speak more. I listen to them speak and I'll speak more in their style, you know, make them comfortable to make them comfortable. And, um, you know, that that's kind of survival skills. Did you see that movie called, um, my octopus teacher? No. Oh, it's a must. It's a documentary about this guy that, that spent a year observing this one octopus and the relationship he oh, developed. Oh, I've seen the preview for that. That is actually, okay, I know that's the oh, name of it. Yeah, that's, that's, a must. that's a must. So this octopus, I mean, you see it kind of land on something and all of a sudden it'll camouflage itself to look exactly like the rock that it's on and then suddenly fly off and then land on something else completely changed the texture, the color, everything of how it looks. I mean, it's amazing that this invertebrate has yeah. such strong survival skills. And so I think of myself a little bit like that. It's like, whatever I land on, that's me. And I, nothing else is in my thoughts. Well, it's interesting because I, I mean, yeah, you, you've written, I look at a lot of the artists you've done. I think part of it's almost like being like a psychologist because you gotta come in, address the room, you know, assimilate a little bit to, to make them comfortable, but also be you, find a balance, you know, but you've written for like- Empathy, like the, empathy is the main thing. It's like, I was given, a, you know, maybe by being gay or whatever, I have a feminine side that has a lot of empathy and nurturing and want to take care of people. So that has been helpful. When people meet me, they know that they're safe with me. And they can tell me their their deepest secrets and all that, you know, they know I won't tell them till my biography comes out. <laughs> it's right, you have one work, you're in the works, right? Yeah. It's called Living on a Prayer, Big Songs, Big Life with David Ritz. So I'm very excited about What's it. What's that coming? Um, think, well, you know, it's like I, we finished it two years ago and I've been trying to get a publishing deal and I've had, you know, a hard time because they've been offered, but they don't offer any money in advance. And they, they give every excuse in the book. And that, then I say, okay, don't, don't, don't worry about the money. What are you going to do for me? And they can't say what they would do. So in the end, then I'm, so I'm going to give you 75% of ownership in my book for life of copyright. And then whatever dollar comes in, you get 75 cents and then I pay off whatever pittance you gave me as an advance for my 25 cents, uh, I'll never recoup. I mean, it's like, I, and give away my, my, my story just like that. It's like- Can you do it yourself? Can you just independently do it? Yeah, you know, that Amazon and Ingram Books and all that, they have self-publishing yeah. things and I was on my way to do it and then David called me and he said he had a lead with somebody at a big publishing company and he had just put out a couple of books one of them is the Lenny Kravitz book and another one on Willie Nelson and he says that they're interested so I'm waiting for this election COVID moment to be done and maybe in the next few weeks they might tell me if there's they're serious if not it's right right to amazon i would say I, I think you should keep looking because it would be fantastic because anything you recoup is going to be you 100 you you'll control it it's you yeah i think i think i'm not i've i've already done all the research it's all the book is ready to go but um you know 
if for some reason this, these people convince me that, look, we're going to do this, this, and this for you, and, mm -hmm. you know, we'll, you know, we're going to give you this much advance because we know that, you know, you know, if you sell 10,000 books at, let's say it's $10 each, that's a lot of money when people have million sellers, you know. Do so, they have nowadays? I don't even know how the book industry is anymore because everything's on Kindle. I don't even know. know. Yeah, but the, you have to pay for that. And uh, the overhead's got to be better though, right? I mean, if it's if you're selling the same book for almost sixteen dollars on Amazon, and you're selling it virtually, so it costs them nothing. So it's like a sixteen dollar profit. You're not even there's nothing. It's like you're pressing a button. Some people really like having a book. Like I'm surrounded by books I haven't read. You know, I don't know. It's so, it's so dumb. You know, things I would I would redo. I would learn how to play guitar. I would learn how to speed read at least a little bit faster. I would learn how to program. I would learn how to use Pro Tools instead of hiring other people to do it. I would want to be way more self-sufficient. I would want to learn other languages like Italian, French, Hungarian, German, Swedish. Go to Sweden and understand what my friends are saying. You know, why are they laughing? You know, <laughs> um, you know, there's so much I would have wanted to do, but you know, I did what I could. I've written I could have over four thousand songs in my That's life. Ambitious. That's really ambitious. And of yeah. those, like maybe a thousand have gotten recorded. So one and out of every four got recorded. Of those thousand songs that were recorded, 80 made it onto the top 40. And of those, only maybe like 15 made it into the top 10. And of those, who knows, seven or eight were number ones or something. You know, so it took, you know, 4,000 songs to come up with, you know. To whittle down. Well, you know, but it's never too late to do these things, though, you know? It's like the outlier miles, you know, whatever the outlier, the 10,000 outlier hours. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Put into something yeah. to be great at it. Well, I did it. I did more than 10,000. But, you know, sometimes when I talk to, you know, people that want to be recording artists or they come to me and, they, and I say, well, how many songs have you written? They said, well, I've written maybe like five songs and it's like what and now you want to co-write with me who's going to be actually writing the song <laughs> now you, you 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 singer obviously you're, you're a really nice voice and you're you're a piano player i'm surprised you so you don't play guitar at all no, no guitar? my mother was a guitarist it's not you know fact, it's not too late it's not too late you start playing now. I just, I just started playing two years ago. I just don't want calluses. <laughs> you do a lot of to get small. Try, when I did try, it was like, oh, this hurts, you know. Um, but um, my mother was a guitarist, and the mm -hmm. symbol of the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame is a sculpture of her from 1954 of her playing guitar. So that's the that's the honor that we give the the. Uh, that's so um, nice. Duck Tees. And um, so Turner, bring me one of those Musa things right there. 
I love the fact that you don't want to get calluses. <laughs> you could do it, man. It's so much fun. I think you, I think you'd be really good at it. I've got these like, well, they look, now they look big, but I, I don't have really like big hands, you know? So this, this is a uh, La Musa Awards winner. Oh, that, is, that is really pretty. That's a sculpture of my mother. She really? Very beautiful, and she was known as La Musa. So it's La Musa Awards. And if you go on uh, latinsonghall.org, you can mm -hmm. find out all about our next gala, which is gonna be at the Hard Rock Hotel in Hollywood, Florida on October 21st, COVID willing. Excellent. You know, we're, we're, uh, and so, you know, I do a lot of things like that. You know, I'm, I'm on the Songwriters Hall of Fame board. I co-founded the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame. I'm on the ASCAP board and I'm involved with uh, the Fountains of Musica Foundation, uh, help, helping to uh, get fountains around the bronze statues at the uh, entrance to Music Row that it was like unfinished. Seven mayors later, we still don't have the fountains, but you know, I'm trying to help raise the money and you know, get the city to get behind us. You know, there's so many things, you know, it's like, um, to do. And I, I did it because I wanted to be more part of the Nashville community. And it really worked because I've met people from all walks of life now, not just people in music. So we, it's very rich, you know, and also our son's going to high school. Um, they went to Ensworth and we met a lot of parents and other, you know, our kids, you know, have friends for life now. So Nashville has been good for me, you know, uh, also, it's kept me focused too, because in New York or LA, I'm like, wow, I want to do everything. I want to be out there. I want to be out all night. I want to, you know, do all these things. Uh, this is more kind of like a more balanced life. That's, 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 that's important, I think. Um, well, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your time. I, I do want to acknowledge two things though, before we end this. Two underrated albums that you did. Actually, I'm sorry, actually two questions. Before I do that, the song, Hide Your Heart. Everybody covered it like in 88, 89. How did that happen? I couldn't find any of them anywhere. And it's always like, I always had that question. I'm like, especially that Ace did it and Kiss together and they weren't together at the same time. Well, the, this is how it happened. I was looking for songs for Bonnie Tyler. So I yep. was co-writing with Paul Stanley and he brought in a song that he had started with Holly Knight. And the song was called Bite Down Hard. And... Mm -hmm. You know, I, it, it already had like amazing elements. And so Paul called Holly and said, hey, I'm here with Desmond. Can we finish this song? You know, and she said, great, fine. So that became Hide Your Heart instead of Bite Down Hard, mm -hmm. you know. And um, it, it, was, it was more kind of uh, easier to take, you know. Oh, yeah. Than, you know, Bite Down Hard, you know. Better hide your heart. So I recorded it with Bonnie Tyler, and it was one. Of, it's one of the best versions. It's the first version. It's her version. I mean, Holly gave me a, a song to record called "The Best." You're simply the best. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. Two years before Tina Turner did it. Okay. Oh. And so I had "Hide Your Heart" and other amazing songs on this record. Then, of course, the label was having all kinds of 
problems between the UK and New York and this and that, and her record fell through the cracks and they told me, well, she doesn't have any hits. Then of course the best became like the biggest song of all time. Yeah. Uh, but hide your heart. I, it just, it just like bugged me that, that it didn't make it. So I cut it with another artist. Um, um, oh my God. Robin, is it you Robin? Robin, Robin, Robin. Beck. Uh, I, I didn't cut it with Cher, but I cut it other Bonnie Tyler songs with Cher as, as well. Like, um, just like Jesse James and um, um, Don't Turn Around, not Don't Turn Around, um, Jesus, Save Up All Your Tears. Um, you know, all these songs that were originally on, on uh, Bonnie's record. So that's the thing, it was like, that song, that Hide crazy. Your Heart, you know, then Ace heard it and cut it. And then <laughs> I think Paul decided because he was a co-writer, hey, I'm going to do it. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many other versions there were, but there were like four out like the same year of that one yeah. song. That's like the old days when Frank Sinatra would sing, you know, Strangers in the Night and Tony Bennett would sing it. And, you know, yep. Sarah Vaughn would funny. sing it. And, you know, everybody would sing that same song. And everybody's version was a hit, you know, and because everybody wanted to hear their interpretation of it. So that was fun. It was, it was interesting. I remember back then, because I know Ace, Ace and Kiss had a, a weird relationship at the time too, so they weren't together. It's been kind of love-hate. So so that one one covering the song, the other one covering was like, am I trying to one-up you? Are you trying to show them this? Is it just kind of fun competition? You know, it kind of felt playful, you know, at best. I don't know. <laughs> if there's anything playful about <laughs> Gene Simmons. Well, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, actually he's, he's, he's a very funny guy and um, has been a great ally and friend, but um, he can be very serious. Let me just put it that way. He's um, a smart man. Uh, I don't know really what was happening between them. I was like already, uh, but one thing we haven't talked about is my, my this song I had out this year that was a hit and made it my sixth decade of number one hits, and that's yeah. called Kings and Queens by Ava Max. Oh, oh I didn't get that. Yeah, I didn't get that. Yeah, Kings okay. and Queens by Ava Max. Congratulations. And it, uh, it really is an interpolation of my original hit, um, If You Were a Woman and I Was a Man, that I wrote for Bonnie Tyler. That Stephen, that uh, Jim Steinman had uh, produced, and it was a hit in Europe. And this song is like, you know, is like exact, you know. So the choruses, you know, so melodically and all that. And and also when I went to co-write "You Give Love a Bad Name," elements of that of that song from Bonnie's song, which I had solely written, made it into that song. So it's a tale of three hits with a you know similar melody. I, Diane Warren called me and she said, would you please stop writing those, you know, with those same three chords? I'm going to kill you. <laughs> but every time I did, it was a hit. <laughs> I, I think, you know, obviously you had a big, bunch of big songs, but you've had a couple albums, I think, and I'm sure you've had some stuff you're like, man, I wish it was bigger. You had two, two, two albums that I, I think were, were great. I think um, when you did Rat's album, you wrote a bunch of songs for Ralph, The Detonator. Detonator those, were yeah. great, th those were some great songs. You know, give yourself yeah. away. Um, yeah, one of yours. 
There's yes. just something about it was so different and it worked with Steven's voice. It was just had a mood to it. I, I, yeah. I, that was my favorite Rat album. And I mean, I like Rat. And when this came out, and it was, it was right on Grunge too. I was like, oh, and this album was just so different. It felt meatier. Uh, loving you's a dirty job. Yeah, and there's something. And to do it. That album, I think, should have been bigger. And I also think that the Scorpions' uh, Humanity Hour One was underrated. I think it, it was, I agree with you. I think Scorpions fans don't appreciate it. I love it. I, I, you know, I just think it's. it's and there's uh, two more of my favorite al- albums Black Roses by the Rasmus. Okay. And Bad Out of Hell Three, Meatloaf, Masterpiece. Yep. Like one of the most expensive albums made of all time. Was it? It's like $2 million to make that album. We're like right there with Guns N' Roses. <laughs> it, it is a good album. Easy way to make a record. I do say that, um, yeah, those, those are, for me, though, those are the two growing up that I was like, how are these not monsters? These are the most, these albums are fantastic, you know? And, 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 and also my, my album Discipline was really yeah. good. Well, you, everything is really good. I'm just saying, I mean, I, I think a lot of stuff fell under the radar of that I was surprised, you know what I mean? At that point, that those bands were as big as they were, that I didn't just catch on fire, like huge. Well, you know, it was that time. You know, when I finally got around to producing bands, the era was over. So there was like, you know, what more could I do? You yeah. know, I, you know, the, you know, the rat record, that all came out after the night in the nineties. Yeah, early nineties. And then, music had yeah. changed, and those those bands weren't getting on MTV. And if you weren't getting on MTV, you weren't you didn't exist. Yeah. So anyway, I've had a very you know amazing career, and um, I'm lucky uh, and unlucky. I didn't make it to be a giant star, but if I had, I'd probably be dead. You know, with my temper and how thin skinned I am. You know, I, I just, uh, well, you are a giant star. You're not a rock star, you're a musician. And I think that's credible and it carries longer, you know, rock stars to the 27 club. I would love to sing on a stage and have like really amazing sound and lights on me, you know, and be, I mean, I really love to sing and emote and well, it's not over. It's not over till it's over. It is a crime because I mean, you are a really good singer. So, you know, you should be singing on more of your songs. I mean, well, I have to forget about the idea that there's a time limit on music and, and on being cool because that held me down for a long time. Everyone would say, well, you're already too old. And I was in my thirties and people saying you're too old. You know, it's like, you don't even, your kids can tell you you're not cool. That's what you have kids. It's like, you're not cool. That's what you have kids for. Exactly. So, Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you. You are, you're the best, man. Remind everybody to religiously follow me on Instagram at Desmond.child. And I respond. I'm on it nonstop. Under the covers, I'm like doing it. Like my husband's like, shut it off. Shut it off. And I can't. <laughs> I'm loyal to my fans and they're all around the world. So they're up 24 seven. And, um, I love that. And also follow Desmond Child at Desmond Child and Rouge and time travel to 1979. Go on our website. There's a little video of a documentary of us called uh, The Story of Desmond Child and Rouge, our story mm-hmm. in there. And it's way, way fun. Yeah, it is. So it's like, 
all of that's going to come together someday. Maybe it'll all be like a, an amazing movie. Maybe I'll put it together as like amazing movie. Me kind of being this kid that was different, that kind of on the outside and wove myself through the fabric of the music of our time. Your whole so. life is a quite a story. So, I mean, and, and yeah, I'll put all the, all the links underneath this too. So everybody can just click on them right from underneath here and go right to it. They're all great. I've, I've gone on all the stuff. It's fantastic. As you are, Desmond, well, I thank you. Here's a, thank here's you. a COVID hug. Here's a COVID hug. Good hug. Thank you, man. I, I, you're the best. Thank you. Right. Thanks for your time. All right. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye. Stay safe. Okay, you too.